Well, happy Easter to you guys. It is good to see everybody and all at the same time, which is very cool. Um, If you haven't been with us lately, I kind of want to bring you up to speed on where we're at so you can get on the bus with us this morning and travel the next leg of the journey together. It will help you understand kind of where we've been and where we're going. We have been studying as a church together, as Matt said earlier, through the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been calling this study the story of the king. And as he also said, when we talk about the story of the king here at Rio, the king that we're talking about, and it's kind of surprising, is not King Saul. And I say that because he's like a central character in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's also not... King David, who at least at this point in the narrative is not yet the king. He's just a boy, but he will go on to be arguably the most famous king of Israel. All right, here's the deal. When we talk about the story of the king at Rio, we're not talking about either one of those guys. We are talking about, and now I'm going to tell you why, King Jesus. And the reason why is something we learned last week that I want to rehearse with you. And it's a little startling, so like it's good that you're seated. But it ends well in Christ. The reason why we're studying about King Jesus, going after King Jesus, seeking to enter actively into the story of King Jesus is because, well, King Jesus is the king we need and he's the king we need because when the perfectly holy, when the perfectly righteous, when the blazingly flawless creator, okay, you ready? Judge and God of the universe looks at me and he looks at you, he doesn't just see what happens out here on the outside of us, though he does see that. I want you to consider something about God that is kind of startling. God is everywhere. And He is altogether everywhere. It's not like His eyes are in Cincinnati and His feet are down here. The whole of God is constantly and continuously present in my life and in your life. And He doesn't sleep and He doesn't blink and He doesn't get distracted. His capacities are so great that He gives to me and to you His full attention. Isn't that glorious? Well, maybe not so much. Because He sees everything out here, which means, just practically speaking, that He has heard every word that you and I have ever said and He has not heard every word that you and I should have said. Think about that. He has been a personal witness to everything we've ever done, and He has personally witnessed all the things that we should have done, but didn't. Everywhere we've gone, well, there He is. And everywhere we should have gone, He's there too. And He knows the difference, but it's a little more intimidating than that even, because God sees when He looks at me and looks at you, not only everything out here, but He sees everything in here. Things that even you can't see about me and I can't see about you. And sometimes I wonder if we can even see about ourselves. He sees what the Bible calls our heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the blood pumping mechanism in our chest. It's talking about the core of our being, the seat of our emotions, the locus of our desires, that place in us from which our desires spring forth. Uh Uh-oh. He's talking about the center of our will and of every single one of our thoughts. Okay, when the perfectly holy, just rehearsing, perfectly righteous, okay, nope, miss this, blazingly flawless creator, judge, and God of the universe looks at me and looks at you, he sees it all from conception to death, after which we're told that he will judge us. Not exactly the Easter message you were expecting, is it? Hang in there, it's going to get good in a minute. After which he will judge us. And by what standard? Is he going to call your mom to the witness stand and say, well, mom, you know, this was your son, little Johnny. I mean, he's not so little anymore, but 
What do you think? I mean, do you think that Johnny was a good dude? Because if you think Johnny was a good guy, that's good enough for me. I mean, you're his mom. How can I argue with that? Okay, that's not going to work. Too bad for that, because you could be like an axe murderer and your mom would give you the thumbs up, right? She'd be showing God selfies from when she visited you in prison and trying to explain that you're just a gentle boy. Johnny is so misunderstood. No, he's a madman. So it's not going to be your mom. What about your friend? Is he going to cycle through all your buddies, you know, your guys you do life with? What do you guys think? I mean, you did life with him. Johnny a good boy? Oh, yeah, he's awesome. And we hope to get the same testimony out of him, by the way. (laughs) Not going to work. He's not going to call somebody up from our culture and say, tell me about the cultural norms of the day and age in which Johnny lived and, and all of the societal mores. Oh, good grief, I didn't know that. Well, then by that standard, Johnny is even better than his mother said. All right, here's the deal. When the perfectly holy, when the perfectly righteous, when the blazingly flawless creator, pause, judge, and God of the universe, who sees it all, all of it, judges us, here's the standard. He will judge us by the standard of his own perfect holiness of his own perfect righteousness, of his own blazing flawlessness. And here's what happens when you come face to face with that reality. You come face to face in that reality with a giant that you look up at and go, I'm done. I got no shot against this guy. None. Zero. Just lay down and die. It is game over. And you recognize then suddenly that your only hope is for somebody else to come along and kill the giant for you. Keep that in mind this morning as we continue our study of the book of 1 Samuel. And we pick it up with the story of David and Goliath, which, as you'll recall, is a story in which King Saul is still the king. But Saul has been rejected by God. Samuel the prophet has come and said, listen, your days as king, okay, they're numbered. He doesn't know how many days have been numbered out to him. It's going to be quite a while, actually, before David becomes the next king, but David will become the next king. He's been chosen for that. He's been anointed for that. Saul doesn't know that yet, praise the Lord, at least from David's perspective. But David's going to become the next king. However, David is about 17 in this story. David is just a boy. David is not even old enough to qualify to fight in the armies of Israel, much less to lead them as their king. You had to be 20 to go into the army. So as we pick up the story today, we find David where? Because it's a significant place. He is in the fields of his father, tending the sheep of his father. David is a shepherd. Now, his three oldest brothers, however... Okay, well, they're over 20. They're up at the battlefront. They are gathered together with the armies of Saul in this place called the Valley of Elah between the cities of Azekah and Soko. We know exactly where this is located. And they're gathered together for war against the dreaded Philistines, the big arch enemies of the people of God, whom they always seem throughout the New Testament or Old Testament rather to be fighting against. If you have read through that, you're familiar with those guys. When we go to Israel and take tours, this is one of the places we go. And I love this site. It is one of my favorite places. We go to the Elah Valley, and again, we know exactly where this occurred. And we go into the valley, and we literally walk down into the brook, you know, where David was. And we all pick up our five smooth stones. And even though thousands of people for thousands of years now have been gathering stones, Israel is not short on stones. So I brought one today. 
But we like to begin the tour of this valley from Tel Azekah. Again, it happens between Azekah and Soko, which you can see right there. And this is actually a picture taken from the hillside of Azekah. All right, well, you can see the broad, flat valley here, and you can see that on one side you have hills, and on the other side you have hills. So on this side you have Saul's camp, on this side you have the Philistines, and the creek or the brook runs along the base of this hill. If you're going to come down off of this hill, you literally have to walk through it to go up into the valley. And what happens in the course of this story is, for 40 straight days, Goliath lines up the armies of the Philistines behind him, and he treks across that valley up to the hill where the Israelites are located, and they're all lined up in battle array, presumably on the hill, looking down at him. And he stands on the other side of that brook that runs along that hill, and he bellows up at the armies of Israel, and he defies Israel, and he defies the God of Israel, and he challenges Israel to a proxy war. And here's what I mean by that. He comes with all of his soldiers behind him, and Israel's all up there with all of their soldiers freaking out. And he says to them, listen, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for all of us to fight all of you. I mean, think about how many people are going to get killed in this deal. Let's do it differently. Here's my proposal. You guys choose one man to represent all of you and your entire nation. The whole fate of the people wrapped up and the one man. And just send him out. And I'll represent our entire nation, and then he and I alone will duke it out. And if he kills me, snicker, snicker, laugh, laugh, all right, well then fine, you know, we'll sign up and we'll be your slaves. But here's the deal, if I kill him, then you will all be our slaves. And it sounds like a reasonable proposal until you read the description of Goliath, which perhaps you're familiar with, But I want to read it very carefully because there's a lot in it. The author here is not just describing a man. And I want you to see that. It says in 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 4, it says, And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was legendary. It was six cubits in a span. You're like, and that is how tall exactly? Again, it's good that you're seated. Nine feet nine. That's Goliath. Now, I know that I just lost about half of you. Like half of you just went, eh, that's where this becomes a myth for me. I get that. And you're not the only one who has ever struggled with the proposed height of Goliath. Apparently some of the scribes way back in the day did too, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a textual variant in this, and that places him closer to six foot nine versus nine foot nine. And frankly, six foot nine would have been giant size in that day. However, the best manuscripts, really and truly, and I think the original is, he's nine foot nine. And I know, again, you want to scoff at that, but let me ask you gently and carefully. And I've asked this of myself, have you, have I actually seen every tall person that has ever lived in the entire history of humanity and therefore we know for a fact that there have never been what we would describe as freakishly tall people? Because there is a guy buried in Liverpool, 17th century, he was nine foot three. So anyway, the point is, he's enormously tall. There came a guy out of the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was, well, nine foot nine. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head. Okay, bronze matters. 
The word bronze in the Hebrew language, which is the original text for this story, comes from the same trilateral root as the word serpent. Very similar word. Different word, same root. And you'll hear the word bronze four times. He had a helmet of bronze on his hands, and then it says in the ESV that he was armed with a coat of mail. Okay, that's not what it says. It says that he was covered in scales. He was clothed in scales. Now, what that's referring to is a scaly kind of armor. And they're bronze scales, and there's a whole heck of a lot of them because he then goes on and says the weight of the scaly coat of armor was 5,000 shekels of serpent. I mean bronze. So there it is again. So he's covered in 126 pounds of bronze scales, and he even had bronze greaves or armor on his legs, and a javelin of, well, there it is again, bronze, and it sure sounds like serpent in the original language, slung between his shoulders. And by the way, what color is a copperhead snake? Because I'm going to go with bronze. What is he describing Goliath as being like? A big, long, gigantic snake. And he's a deadly snake. For we now read that the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head, just the thing on the head of that spear, weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is 15 pounds. And that speaks not to his height now, but that speaks to his great and enormous strength. And his shield-bearer went before him, and not surprisingly, nobody in Saul's army, including Saul, who by the way, stood head and shoulders above all the people of Israel, so he was kind of a giant, want anything to do with this guy, and not even Saul's faithful and amazingly courageous son, Jonathan, who in a previous story took on the Philistines, you ready, by himself, in the power of God. Not even he can deliver from this giant serpent. And so here's what we have so far in the story. We have the people of God and they've come up against a giant. All right, here's the thing. They got no shot. They're done. Lay down and die unless somebody comes forward. Somebody other than them kills the giant. Meanwhile, David is back in the family farm. He is tending his father's sheep looking after them because he is a shepherd that is until his father becomes so concerned about the father's three oldest sons that he calls David in from the fields and he says, look, I want you to go up to the battlefront and I want you to look after the welfare of my son. I want you to bring back news as to how these guys are doing. And so David is the shepherd son of the father sent by the father to look after the welfare of his children. And he arrives on day 41 just in time for Goliath's rant. And as David stands there listening to Goliath on the one hand, insulting Israel and insulting the God of Israel, and then on the other hand, as David stands there at the same time watching the Israelite soldiers, it says, flee for their tents in fear, okay, he realizes two things. Number one, Israel needs a champion. I mean, they've come up against a a giant that they cannot defeat. And number two, he's the only one still standing on the hillside. So David says, look, you know, guys, um, I mean, I just came to look after my brothers, but as luck would have it, I've got a little time. So while I'm here, I'll do it. And word begins to spread throughout the camp of Israel that, that the shepherd boy, okay, he's going to do it. Or at least he's volunteered. And I want you to imagine how ridiculous 
that sounds. I mean, you've got some mighty guys in Israel. Big, strong, you know, experienced guys. Men with weaponry. And, you know, they've killed hundreds of people. They're, they're like, and David? There is laughter in this. There are insults in this. There is derision in this. And he endures the whole of it. In fact, even his oldest brother pulls him aside and says, what is your problem, man? You're like a show-off. You've got to be in the middle of everything. This is stupid. This is foolish. You're making a fool of yourself. But the word makes it back to King Saul. And Saul is looking for a way out of this because, again, he's the biggest in the camp, so it seems like he's the obvious choice. But he takes a look at David, and he too thinks this is crazy. But I want you to listen to what David says to him, verse 34. It says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father because he's a shepherd. And when there came a lion, now what is that? The king of beasts or a bear. That's a pretty scary animal. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him. I went after him. And struck him and delivered that lamb out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I kill him. And so David says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this other creature, this other animal-like, serpent-like man... This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And so David, the shepherd's son of the father, sent from the father to come to look after the welfare of the father's children, who suffers the derision of that, who everybody laughs at, will go forward alone all by himself, And not with swords and spears, but with the implements of a shepherd. And he will face alone on behalf of all of his people. Their whole fate is tied up in him. The giant serpent. The one who looks like he cannot possibly be defeated. And he will do it in order to free his people from a slavery that they are incapable of freeing themselves from. They're done. It's over, unless he wins. And so Saul, who is either convinced or desperate, says to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then we read this in verse 40. It says, And then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook that runs along the base of that hill that he has to actually walk through just to get to Goliath anyway. And he put them into his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Which, incidentally, is just another kind of animal, isn't it? And it's a lot less scary than a lion or a bear. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The shepherd's staff? What do you want me to fetch? Is that what this is? It's a game? Is this a joke? Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
So he's the giant serpent who brings a curse. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, and of all these different you know speeches that you read about in the Bible, this is one I would really love to be there for. Like this would be way high on my list. David has one of those rare moments in which he actually says, everything that he ought to say and exactly the way he ought to say it. You know, it's not like one of those deals where you get in an argument with somebody and you drive away going, oh, I wish I had said this or it would have been great if I would have stuck in this. David gets it all. He just nails it. It's phenomenal. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, with the weapons of this world, by which I agree, you cannot be defeated. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And let me tell you what's going to happen. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, everybody on your side of the battle line, everybody on our side of the battle line may know that the Lord saves and not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. That's sweet. When the Philistine then arose... And came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly back to the tent. He said, you know what? You called my bluff. I, I thought I had you with the speech. Everybody was going with it. And then I realized, no, it, it's not what he does. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near, when it was go time, this is when the rubber hits the road. Nice speech, David. Now what? David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And as he's running, he puts his hand into his bag and he takes out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine. Where? On his arm? No, on his forehead. And the stone crushed his head. It sank into his forehead and the Philistine, Goliath the giant serpent, fell on his face to the ground. And so the shepherd's son of the father sent from the father to check on the welfare of his children who suffers the derision of his brother, who goes forward on behalf of all of his people, everybody's fate tied to this guy, to face the giant serpent that nobody else could defeat. In fact, nobody else would step forward to deliver his people from a slavery that they could not deliver themselves from, crushes the head of the giant serpent. And it all happens, I'm thinking, like in five or ten seconds. This is quick. This is quick. And it says that David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, how unlikely, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David with which to cut off his head to finish him off. And so then David ran and stood over the Philistine while everyone on both sides of the battle line just stood there like, I mean, stunned silence. Shock and awe. No way.
David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David with which to finish him off. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took Goliath's own sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. He takes the very instrument that Goliath had used, or designed at least, desired to use to kill David with, and he turns around and kills him with it and cuts off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And then what did the Israelites do? They all high-fived each other. They said, thank you, David, so much. They packed up their tents and, and they went home, right? Because that's it. You've saved us. We're done, and now we will just go back to our normal lives. No, there's no normal life after that. That's not the way it works. Inspired by the great deliverance and by their great champion, their great deliverer, they quit standing on the sidelines of a battle that was so clearly and obviously in front of them. And they rose up and chased the Philistines all the way back to Goliath's hometown. So let's rehearse for a second. When the perfectly holy, when the perfectly righteous, when the blazingly flawless creator, judge, and God of the universe looks at me and looks at you, he sees it all. Everything on the outside, everything on the inside, personal witness, no blinking, no sleeping. I think we're good with that. Everybody's got it. And then he judges us, okay, based upon his own perfections. That's the standard. Guys, that's a giant that I can't defeat and neither can you. So then what is our only hope? That somebody else would come and defeat the giant for us or we are done. We have no shot. It's over. And that someone is not David. But that someone is Jesus. Just like David is the shepherd, son of the father, sent by the father to look after the welfare of the father's children. What is Christ? He's the self-proclaimed good shepherd. The Son of God Himself, sent by Father God into this earth, clothing Himself in our humanity. Christmas, that He might walk among us as a man among men. And you need to personalize that because He was sent by the Father to look after you and your welfare. And just like David suffered the derision of his brother, so also did Jesus. They laughed at him. They scoffed at him. Oh, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Come down off the cross. Come on, show us. Really. Just as David went forward alone to face the great serpent, giant of a man, Goliath, to free his people from a slavery they were stuck in. There was no hope apart from his deliverance of them. So it is with us. Jesus went forward to face the great serpent of old. The one who came slithering into the garden and plunged us into all of this madness originally. And to defeat for us him and the giant of our sin and death, which when we face, we realize we got no shot. And to free us from a much greater slavery to sin and eternal death. And just as David took the sword of Goliath and ironically turned around and used it to cut off his own head, Jesus took the very thing that they scorned him about, the cross. His suffering, his death, 
and his burial. And on the moment, on the day that we commemorate today, which is Easter, he came forth from the grave. See, he took the weapon of the evil one who sought to gain a victory over him, and by those same means, he gained a victory over him and over sin and over death for everyone who comes to him and puts their faith in him. And so when we talk about the story of the king, you know, I mean, it's interesting to study about King Saul and King David, and they're kind of, you know, cool lessons about this and that and the other thing that we can learn. But if you don't see King Jesus, you've missed the whole thing because we don't need King Saul. And we don't need King David. We need Christ our King. So before I'm done, two questions. One, have you seen your need for King Jesus? Have you rehearsed enough of life to go, okay, yeah, no, no, I don't need to rewind the tape any further than that. (laughs) God's seen all that? Good grief. That's a giant. I can't undo it. There is not enough white out in the world to erase those things off the pages of my life. And that's a problem if the standard is, well, yeah, it is. Perfect holiness? Okay, we're good. I need somebody from outside of me to save me by killing this. And that's Christ. And then secondly... Are you still, even if you've done that, just standing on the sidelines of the spiritual battle that is so obviously before you, or are you engaged in it because the battle is on, guys, and it is a battle for your heart and for your mind and for your soul and for your life, but not just yours, the hearts and souls and minds and lives of your kids, of your husband, of your wife, of your parents, of your family, of the people you work with, of the folks you go to school with, of this city and of this world. There is a battle raging all around us. And here's what I think we do. Oh, great. We've got Jesus. He saved us from the great Goliath. Okay, fine. I'm going to pack up my tent now and I'm going to go home and I'm going to live my life and I'll see you in heaven. That's not the right response. They get it right here. You have been greatly delivered, and you have a great deliverer. And here's the response. It is rise up and fight, and not against the world, for it, starting in your own home. So, have you seen your need for Jesus and brought your sin and self to Him? And spiritually speaking, what are you doing? And what aren't you doing? Are you engaged in the fight? Or packing up your tent? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this marvelous story that has captured the heart's in minds of men and of women and children of all ages, people from every race, people from every nation, people from every language, people from every age of man. All of us resonate with this story, and not because it's an underdog story, but because it's our story. Because we need one who is greater even than David to free us from the giant of our sin that we clearly cannot free ourselves from. 
And we need one who is greater even than David to then lead us into battle for the hearts and souls and minds and lives of the people all around us. Lord, bring us to Yourself. Humble us. Reveal Yourself to us. And let us celebrate You with great joy, knowing that through faith in You, we're free. We're free. Amen.